Hello and welcome to another Positive Podcast. In today's episode, I have the distinct privilege to interview Dr. Shigalov. Dr. Shigalov is a psychologist who runs a private practice in both Minneapolis and Buffalo, as well as a private practice in Brooklyn, New York. He works with adolescents, adults, families, and couples. His areas of practice include personality disorders, suicidal ideation and behaviors, chronic mental illness, depression, anxiety, as well as parenting and generational issues. Rabbi Dr. Shigalov has extensive experience working with addictions, most specifically internet and sexual addictions in the general population and the Jewish community. I sat down with Dr. Shigalov and asked him many questions about mental health, struggling teens, parenting styles, and more. I found his calm demeanor and positive approach helpful and insightful. I think you will as well. I would love to hear your thoughts and feedbacks on this podcast, as well as what came up for you. Let's keep this conversation going. Feel free to email me with any questions or comments that you have. And in addition, if you'd like to hear more information on positive life coaching that I offer, or if you'd like to sign up for a free consultation, you can reach me through my website at apositivecoach.com. And like always, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with a friend or family member and leave a comment and rating. This helps other people be able to find my podcast easier. Thanks again for listening. Sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Thanks again, Dr. Shigala, for joining us today. We're going to get right into it with one of my first questions here. It has been, you know, a tough few weeks for the from world with um, the Chaim Walder story. And a lot of people are discussing this. And I've heard people discuss that, you know, it's an opportunity to discuss not only inappropriate touch and boundaries with our children, but also not to squander the opportunity and use it properly to discuss the beauty of intimacy and appropriate touch and et cetera. So my question for you is, could you give us a little bit of an understanding for a moment about what age or ages is the right time to start discussing this and what is the correct or easier way to have this conversation about inappropriate, appropriate touch? Well, first of all, um, there are two actually two books put out by Torah Masora, at least, about appropriate touch and inappropriate touch. And I think those are great resources, and I think people can look those up and find them. I do have them somewhere over here. I just want to say that there are some good Jewish texts and good Jewish books which can help parents, uh, especially children's books with pictures, which will help parents bring up the subject with their children. That's number one. Number two, you're bringing up two separate issues. One of them is appropriate touch and inappropriate touch. And the other one is the beauty of intimacy and things like that. And those are very much connected, but they are two different conversations. So uh, I believe that the age of four, three or four or five is already the right time to talk to your children about appropriate touch. The minute your children are out of your sight and are going over somewhere by themselves, and you're letting them be by themselves and they're not being watched, is the time to talk about appropriate touch and inappropriate touch. Children need to know that the parts of their bodies which are covered are private and cannot be touched by anybody, whether it's a adult, whether it's a family member or anything like that, except for a parent or possibly a doctor who uh, wants to check them. But otherwise, a body part of the body which is covered 
should remain covered and nobody has the right to touch them, or they ask them to touch them to see any, any part of their body, which is usually tzniyas. What's As we all know that uh, inappropriate touch and uh, uh, child molestation and sexual abuse doesn't happen from strangers most of the time, it happens from friends. And we are taught, children are taught from the beginning, be careful of strangers and things like that. But they also need to be told, be aware that your body is your own and it's private. Uh, we live in a time where fortunately, uh, you know, parents are becoming more and more aware of that. I think it's appropriate for parents to have conversations even with family members about being cautious about touch. And I know this is a sore subject and it's a subject I would prefer, I'm a grandparent, uh, and so I'd love to pick up my children and hug them and do all of these things. But it is appropriate for parents to tell even family members to be cautious about how they interact with children and get the permission to pick them up and do things like that because of teaching the children to set boundaries and to be able to say no to inappropriate touch. I'm not saying that grandparents shouldn't pick up the children or anything like that, or parents should stop them from picking up the children. But these are the kind of things, we live in a new generation and parents need to be sensitized and children need to be given the power to be able to say no to any kind of touch, especially inappropriate touch, and know that their bodies are there. So this conversation starts early on. Mm -hmm. I recommend highly that if you're sending your kids to overnight camp, or you're sending your kids away to other places, to uh, to uh, friends, that you have a conversation, a quick conversation about appropriate and inappropriate touch and appropriate uh, and inappropriate requests and things like that. The second question you're asking about is the, the, the beauty of intimacy. And that has a lot to do with um, understanding a person's body, children understanding their body and understanding what's happening to them. That's a conversation which begins at uh, pre-puberty. That begins at 11 or 12. That's a time when parents need to sit down with their children and start having a very frank conversation about what's going to happen to their bodies. For boys, it's one conversation. For girls, it's another conversation. Because that is going to happen. And it's number one, it's physically going to happen. Their bodies are going to change. But also emotionally, they're going to change. And they're going to have thoughts and feelings and desires and interests, which are going to be unusual to them. And this is the beginning of emotional distress for teenagers, because what happens is they become exposed to these thoughts and these feelings and urges, and they don't know what to do with them. And they think mm -hmm. there's something wrong with them. These things need to be normalized. Once upon a time, we may have been able to get away with not talking about it and hoping that they won't get exposed. Nowadays, we cannot afford not to have out to expose our children to these things because if we don't expose them to our children, expose these things, if we do not have these conversations with our children, they will hear about it from other sources. That's why it's so important for us to be the first ones, uh, try to be the first ones, so that we're not playing catch up when they hear strange and weird ideas from other people. I can't tell you about how many strange, um, uh, ideas teenage boys and teenage girls have about themselves simply because they have no experience and they've had no, nobody's had a conversation with them. And mm -hmm. as a result, simple things which we take for granted are self-understood are not understood uh, by teenagers, by young men and by young women. So that conversation begins hopefully 
before just before puberty. For right. boys, I think great opportunity for that is that they start to learn for their bar mitzvah and they start, which is usually around 12, by then is the time to start to have a conversation with them already about what's going to happen to them, and how their body is going to change, and that these things are normal. And this is part of the struggle and this is part of the challenge of becoming an adult. Yes, that makes sense. That resonates. Um, with regard to teaching them the facts of life, instead of them learning about it from the playground or in their classroom or in camp, they should be hearing it from us. And I'm curious if teaching them about the facts of life should be happening a little bit earlier than that, because I don't want to, I want to be the first one to be teaching them. So I'm wondering if, you know, a little bit younger would be the time to talk about, well, you said about the body changes is one conversation, a inappropriate touch, you know, starts earlier, obviously you said when they leave your house at three or four or that age when they understand that. And with regard to teaching them about the facts of life, a lot of people are not sure when the right time to discuss that is. And I'm curious what your feelings about that are. Well, we're lucky because, you know, our kids go to school and they go and they learn Chumash and they learn things like that. So if we're talking about the Orthodox Jewish community, yes, there are, there are opportune times when we can bring up the subject with them. It's a good idea is for parents to become sensitized to this idea and to be ready for it. Children learn about these things in school. They learn things in, in Chomish. And instead of running away from these things, when children ask us innocent questions, which a good idea is to give them straightforward, simple answers. We don't have to give them that much information, but there's basic information, you know, we learn in Chomish and, uh, you know, uh, ideas about, uh, and Yaakov laid with her and she had a child. Right. That's an opportunity to tell our children if they ask the question, what does this mean? You know, mommy and, uh, mommy and Tati have to uh, lay together to have a baby. Simple, start the conversation there. If they ask more questions, just respond as basically as you can, giving them the minimal information they're asking for. It's an important, important way to do that. So we have ample opportunities. And the nice thing about that is we're giving them the answers in a very naturalistic way and we're giving to them from a Torah perspective. This is the Torah, which they're learning. And it's a great springboard. And that's why also child boys putting on tefillin, it's a great time. They may start going to mikveh, talking to them about what the importance of what mikveh is about. Your body's going to change and things like that. You have great opportunities to introduce ideas about sexuality and about uh, the body changing in a very healthy way. And also busting myths for these children. Yeah. And I can go into these myths which children have, which just go on forever, the kind of the mistakes they have because they pick them up from other people or they imagine things about themselves. Right. So let's give them the information from us. Let us be that first place that they're coming to. Absolutely. Right. You know, it seems like teens today are struggling more than ever before. You know, even, you know, five years ago, even after COVID now, or I shouldn't say after, during COVID. Um, what would you attribute this to? Like, we know there's so much anxiety, depression. Um, it's starting even younger than before. You see 12 year olds that are struggling with suicide ideation and addiction is a big thing for teens. And I, I've heard you speak before and I'm sure many of my listeners have heard before your, your talk on technology. If you haven't, I encourage everyone to go listen to any of those talks. They're very informative and they're all available, I think on YouTube or I can, I can give you that information if you'd like. 
But I know that you have a very important position on technology and you've been a real leader in that respect in discussing its dangers, et cetera. What else besides technology or if do you feel it's just technology that would you attribute all of the struggle that we're seeing today? So I wanna make a clarification first. And okay. I appreciate all of that. And the clarification I want to make is I'm not against technology at all. Right. I actually think technology is quite a positive thing and it can be used very well. And I don't think there's a problem if parents introduce it to their children and children learn how to use it in a responsible way. Most of the things I talk about is just being responsible and cautious right. about it and being careful about it and doing it in a way that children learn responsibility. I uh, just want to put that out there. My biggest issue is when parents are giving smartphones to their children and there's no control. This is something which is not for children to have at a very young age. So I want to put that out there. Um, in terms of what children struggle with, I think that uh, I also want to say that, you know, uh, mothers and fathers don't call me when the children are doing well. <laughs> so there are a lot of children who are doing wonderfully out there and out this generation, the kids who I see, uh, there's a lot of tremendously positive things which are happening. Absolutely. And, and this is just a, a wonderful thing that our children are growing in an age like this and they're doing well. But I think at the same time, as you pointed out, there are children who are struggling. And yes, I think we do see depression and anxiety earlier and earlier. It may be indirectly related to technology. It, it's indirect technology. And I think there's other things also which account for it. And that is that the more technology we have, the more communication we have, the more we are communicating and the less we're connecting with the people who are directly around us. And I think it's interesting because we can live in a family of many, many, of many children or even just few children, whatever the situation is, where we feel that we're connected, but we're actually not. Children are lonely. And I think that's having a big effect on our children. Our children are being raised by technology or our children, people don't have the time to be fully focused on their children because we live in such a busy society today. So it could be technology, it could be work, it could be busyness that we want so much of our, of our children. And what ends up happening is they're so involved in life, but the most important thing they need, which is connection and guidance, they're not necessarily getting. Mm -hmm. We're all outsourcing, outsourcing relationships, we're outsourcing education. And what's happening is the, the old style structure of family, um, is less available and less than so children are feeling a lot more alone. Right. Even though we're so connected, meaning with our phones and technology, we are feeling a lot of loneliness. Loneliness is I, really- I think, I think we are feeling loneliness. I think we don't understand. I mean, I'm starting to realize that every time I'm having a conversation with somebody and my phone rings and I pick it up and I say, just wait a minute. To me, I'm just telling them to wait a minute. To them, the message they're getting is that somebody else is more important, more important than, than me. Yeah. And children don't blame their parents for those kind of things. They just internalize them. Right. And they say, it's the truth. Other people are more important than me. I'm not that significant. And so children are striving, looking for significance. Now, 
I don't think that's much that much different than it used to be. I think that parents were always busy. And I think that parents, oh, there was always this tension between work and between giving our attention to children. But once upon a time, when children didn't have uh, their parents' attention, they turned that need for connection. They may have turned that need for um, productivity or for into positive energy. They go read a book. They may go on their bikes and go outside. Today, what's happening is children have become passive recipients of entertainment. They become passive recipients of immediate gratification. And this is having a tremendous impact on them. So instead of them using discomfort to produce positive energy, they're using discomfort now as a way to escape into their phone and not to get what they need and, and to become um, set, uh, satisfied, how do I say, satisfied by issues of immediate gratification. And at the same time, they're just not getting what they need. Right. And uh, so that, I think, that I think definitely that's a big makes issue. sense. That is a big issue. Um, when we're with our that, children. Go ahead. When we're with when we're when we're with our children, we need to be more mindful of being actually present. You said taking a phone call. That was like more, you know, my generation. Our parents would take a phone call. Now it's they're looking at their phones and not looking at us. And even when they say, you know, we're yeah, I'm watching you, I'm watching you, but we're not really. We're watching our phones. And that's the, that's some a subtle message that we're sending to our children that we have to be very, very aware of. Um, I think a lot of adults today are not even aware of uh, the the importance of connection in terms of raising their children. We think of raising our children in terms of the responsibilities of raising our children instead of as the connections which we create with our children, spending time with them, being there for them. And I think it's the society which has become so busy, which has stolen that away from us. True. Now, I heard you mention on your last talk for the MUST organization, which is really an incredible evening. And you said, use the term unconditional love. And it's a trigger word currently. You know, there's always new words that are like trending, but, but there are triggers involved. And you said that it's something that people do not understand or they don't completely understand it correctly. And it, it may have morphed into, you know, more of a permissive parenting versus unconditional love. So can you tell us a little bit about what does unconditional love look like from your perspective? How do you see that? What does that look like? So obviously I have nothing against unconditional love. I believe it's very important. I believe it's important for children to know that we love them unconditionally. They don't have to be a certain way for us to love them. And if they can't be that, we're not gonna love them. That's so important. Unconditional, unconditional love is absolutely important. There are times for example, when a child reaches the age of 16, 17, and 18, and they've made choices for themselves, and we don't have any more influence over them, we don't have authority over them, when it's important to recognize that unconditional love is what they're gonna need to keep them, into, to keep them connected to us. But for younger children, unconditional love is one part of parenting. There's also another part of parenting, and that is, children want to feel that they are valuable and that they can accomplish and that they've got abilities and that those abilities are recognized. 
So it's not that we misunderstand unconditional love. It's that unconditional love is not the only thing we sense of ex the, a belief that they can achieve something, a pride in an achievement, and then a pride in their ability, and then pride, uh, a pride in their own competence. The problem becomes when we choose for them what they should, what they should achieve, when we teach, when we um, decide for them what we're going to be proud of. Children need to feel that we need to give ch children the ability to develop something which they can be proud of, they put in an effort, and that they can succeed in. And this is an ongoing conversation, and it's an ongoing adjustment which parents need to make to the children. Children need to grow up with expectations. We expect them to do well in school. We expect them to make something out of themselves. These are very important things. Children don't want just unconditional love. Had a conversation with a client a few months ago, came into the office. His parents are in the mental health field. He's married with children and told me, I cannot trust my parents' compliments because when my parents give me a compliment, I didn't own it. I didn't earn it. They just give it to me because they love me. And so I never knew whether I really earned their respect or that they were just loving me because who I, who I was. Mm -hmm. And so here's a person telling me he was running around looking for people who set expectations for him. He was able to meet them and get what he called real compliments. Our children need unconditional love, but they also need from us a sense of expectation and the pride that they can accomplish those expectations. But we as parents need to make sure that the expectations we set on our children are expectations which they can meet. We also need to give them the opportunity to find those things which they are motivated, they're excited to do, and then help them learn how to put in the effort to be able to achieve and to succeed in those things. It can be academics for some kids. Some kids won't achieve that well in academics. What we need to teach them is that if we modify the academics and they work hard, they can be complimented and that's something which can give them self-esteem. They don't have to be like everybody else. I watch a phenomenon in our educational institutions and in the yeshivas, which on one end is a beautiful thing, but on the other hand, I think it's important for us to be cautious about. Yeshivas are doing a wonderful job today. I see, um, um, directors of the yeshivas and of the schools being more and more sensitive of mental health issues and taking guidance from mental health professionals. And I think that's an amazing accomplishment in this generation. Most of the yeshivas I work with and most of the schools I work with are uh, eager to get input from mental health professionals. But I also notice something which I think is something which schools have to become cautious about. And that is what I call these mibzas. And a mibza, I don't know if you're familiar with that, is a yeah. lot of these students. What they're doing is younger uh, students, younger Bacham are coming in and doing mibzas. And these are great things, which we are encouraging the children to learn certain things and to learn more and more. And what's happening is boys and girls are becoming more and more involved in academic excellence or academic knowledge at the cost of their own self-care. 
And yes, in the short term, they may feel like they're going to be rewarded, recognized for academic excellence and for academic uh, pursuit. But what's happening at the same time is they're becoming overworked and they have no time for themselves. And so in the short term, they're gaining a lot of information. In the long term, we're burning them out. Right. I'm curious. To, I want to ask you something about that, because some of the mythos that I've seen are actually like within the Lubavitch system, you know, you know, the Bacham that, you know, say Krishma Alamita or, you know, put, you know, Nagelvasar by their bed or say, you know, all those kind of smaller things um, are, you know, they have those kind of mitzvahs or are you talking to the mitzvahs of learning an additional mimer by heart or learning more Tanya Balpet or, or like these um, bigger tests that they have to learn for? Is it more, is that what you're speaking to? Because I can't, I actually can see the, the benefit when you have a mitzvah that's helping the kids be inspired to do, to live a life that's, you know, has those morals and values that they're living. I'm just curious what you're referring to specifically. So I actually appreciate that clarification because that's a very good point. And yes, you're exactly on target. Those, uh, that is the difference between those two different kinds of mitzvahs. A mitzvah, which is we're supporting and uh, rewarding boys and girls to do those things which they need to do anyway, those mm -hmm. things are wonderful. Those okay. things are great. Children need that inspiration. They need sometimes a reward. They need a motivation to do these things. I'm referring to the uh, mitzvahs and uh, pushing our children to take on additional learning and additional things to reach a certain goal. Those are things we need to be cautious about. Don't get me wrong, they are not bad things. However, we need to be cautious about who's doing them and why they're doing them. Is this mm -hmm. something which they want to achieve? Or is this something which they're doing because everybody else is achieving and it's taking a big cost on them? That's what I'm referring to. Yeah, that's a very good point. I never thought of it that perspective. I will say that from personal experiences and people that I've spoken to, it's interesting that some, you know, students or Bahram are learning actually better for the mitzvahs than they are for their school thing because for some reason that talks to them more. They may not be taking their classes so seriously, but this huge prize that they're earning to this huge trip at the end of the year and they have to be tested on Tanya or, or whatever it is, they actually apply themselves to it very, you know, even more. So it's an, it's an interesting perspective that I never, I never thought of before that there are students that for them, it's too much. It becomes an addition to their scholastic achievements. It's, it's too much for them. Absolutely. And again, uh, like you said, a lot of the children are going to benefit from these things, but I think it's important for us to keep an eye and watch the impact it's having on, uh, on other children. So you're talking with regard to the yeshiva or the parents. I, I think that's an interesting question because you, you have to look at each child individually and say, you know, are, you, what is this child's capabilities? What is this child's um, interest here? And, and help them be able to make those choices. Like, do you really want to be taking on this test? It's, it's a lot. Are you sure you want this? You don't need to do it. We could, you know, you have a lot of schoolwork that you have to do, like really having those conversations with our children as well. But I'm curious, do you feel like it's the yeshiva too? That needs I think, to be I think, I think, I don't want to put on more work on the yeshiva. I also don't want to put on more work on, on parents, but I think both need to be more considerate and watch when we're doing these kind of mitzvahs, when we're doing these kind of incentives, how it's affecting, how it's affecting our children. Um, Another important thing is the idea of um, uh, 
Children and even adolescents need free time. They need that free time to develop social skills. They need that free time to develop self-care and, and um, to be refreshed and uh, to be renewed. And if we take that away from them, even for the benefit of learning more, we need to, con we need to con be considerate about the long-term results of that. And that's just something I think, the, you know, yeah. parents and, and the hardest thing is that our children don't often make the best choices for themselves. Even teenagers don't make the best choices for themselves because they feel obligated and motivated to do this, but it is paying a toll. It, it is taking a toll out of them. Yeah, that's Just a very good careful. point. Be cautious when, when we uh, motivate our children. Uh, if you recognize that your child may not have the stamina or the strength for this, don't let, right. make them feel confident let them feel uh, okay to say that they don't want to get involved in this right no that's a very good point and sometimes it's hard because if the whole class is doing it you're the only one who's not doing it and you know you have to understand that it's not only what the parents saying but you the children you know naturally want to be part of their connection they want to connect to their friends and their class so that you have to be you know aware of that as well um a good wanna... idea is for sometimes parents or, or parents or the school, when they recognize this issue to turn to an individual child and modify whatever the MIPS mm -hmm. is to fit that child. So yeah, they can take on something like you said earlier, something which fits within the daily schedule, the daily learning and say, you know what, for you, why don't you do this? And for you, right. this will be, this will be your MIPS and you'll be rewarded for that. Right. That's a good clarification there. I like that. I want to be very gentle in how I phrase this next question. Um, the fact is, is that parenting can be quite challenging. And if you have challenging kids who are struggling even more so, you know, you could have children who require therapy and medications. And I've spoken to many different parents who have shared this idea with me. And one of the things that come up for people when they have this relentless parenting that I call is that they almost kind of wish that they didn't have this struggling child. And I've been asked on numerous occasions, like, I'm so embarrassed that I even verbalize this, that I feel this way, that I, how can I think this way? And I don't think they mean that God forbid they want, God forbid anything to happen to their child. Of course they don't. But I just wanna ask you if you can speak to this topic a little bit, because I know people that are listening have experienced these feelings before. And I, I think it's important for people to have some clarity around this. So I've got a lot of thoughts about that. Thank you for raising that question. We're going, it goes in a couple of different directions, but I'll try to talk about some of them. So first of all, we cannot be responsible for the way we feel. We're only responsible for the way we act. I think it's important for people to realize that the way we feel is not something which we choose to do, but usually is a sign of something bigger. Uh, when we feel, when I feel like I want to eat a donut, it's usually a sign that I'm hungry. <laughs> Similarly, when, uh, when parents feel resentful feelings towards their children, it means it's like a red light going on and an indicator saying, there's nothing wrong with my child, but probably I'm overworked and I'm overstressed. Uh, I work with young mothers who are nursing their children who are ashamed drastically ashamed and horribly ashamed to tell me 
they had feelings, horrible feelings towards their child because they had a baby six, seven months ago. They had not sleep, slept properly in six and seven months. And they were having fantasies that the child would be taken away from them. And they couldn't believe that they could have such thoughts about a child who on one hand they loved, but on the other hand had these horrible thoughts. And what they thought was that they hated their child. That mother didn't hate their child. That mother was so overwhelmed and so tired that this thought was really just an indication of how worn down they were. Mm -hmm. And it's just an indication that they need help and they need support. Today, parents are so overwhelmed and so bombarded by information that we feel inadequate all the time. And I know that I and my profession is partially responsible for that. I have written articles. I've talked to parents about what ideal parenting is. And a lot of time, all that, well, times, all of that does is make parents feel more and more incompetent. So I want to stand up and I want to rectify a little bit of that and say something called good enough parenting. If you try hard and you do your best to be engaged, involved with your children, you're doing what you need to be doing. We need to take care of ourselves and we need to take care of our children too. It's okay to say no to our children sometimes. It's okay for our children not to have everything they want and not always to have the best. We do the best we can. As long as we're making conscientious decisions, we'll make mistakes. Our children will get hurt, but over the long term, they will survive if they get the sense that all in all, we're trying our best. Yes, we do need to get some help. We do need to understand some of the issues our children are struggling with. But this idea of perfect parenting is killing ourselves and it's killing our children. Because when we become parent, perfect parents to our children, we don't raise perfect children. When we are perfect parents, what we are doing is we're raising children that nothing less than perfect is enough. We are transferring our anxiety to them. When we are happy and we're confident and we're trying to stay engaged and connected with our children, we, are, we will raise healthy children. I think we need to feel a little more confident about our parenting as long as we're trying hard and staying connected. We'll most likely do a good job. I like that. I like that approach. Good enough parenting. Um, it doesn't mean you can't listen to podcasts and read books, but like in anything in life, if you're pursuing it too much, like that whole idea of if you're looking to be happy, constantly pursuing it, you're not going to be happy. If you're constantly pursuing purpose, you're not going to be finding purpose because you're too busy chasing it. You got to let it be and have that little bit of, you know, space between it so that you can actually achieve it. Um, and I think exactly. that 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 really resonates with me, that idea that a parent that's feeling these maybe negative feelings for their child should look at it and say, hey, like you said, what are our emotions are there to tell us what we're feeling? So, hey, let me take a step back and say, I may need to be asking for someone to step in here, my, my spouse, my parent, another friend to help me so that I can take some space so that I can come back refreshed for this child because I am feeling this way. Use it as, a, as like almost like a, a red flag, like you said, to really help us say, okay, what can I do about this? But also to recognize that we're normal and that we have feelings and that these are going to this these feelings are normal to have at times but what are you going to do about it I, I like that idea of like you know 
it's not about what our feeling, what we're, it's more about what we're doing than what we're feeling and in, in the bottom line, but we have to listen to our feelings. Otherwise it will affect what we're going to be doing as well. So that really resonates with, resonates with me. I want to take a different angle for a minute. Um, I know that you're the go-to guy for many yeshivas and Bahram, uh, specifically, I know, you know, ages 13 to 18 or maybe older. I know not, you know, only limited to that. And they're struggling with, you know, many of them are struggling with anxiety, depression, and addiction, porn, uh, pornography addiction. What can parents do to get ahead of these specific issues? And I know that we touched on in other things, but like specifically regarding um, pornography or what can, what can the parents be doing more of? And what can the yeshivas be doing to get a help to get ahead of these things? I know there's a lot of rules and you can't have this phone. You can't have this at home. Somehow it seems that they're able to get around it. If they're trying to, they're going to find it somehow at a certain age. Um, but are there any things that we can be doing ahead of time, discussions, conversations, what, what else can we be doing and what can the yeshivas be doing? So first of all, I think parents are doing a lot already. And I think yeshivas are doing a lot and they're doing as much as they can. Uh, I think technology and other influences are really, really causing a lot of stress. But before I go further, I just want to point out that uh, I am a psychologist and I work about a third of my time with teenagers. I also okay. work with adults, right. I work with couples, I work with uh, generation, generally, generational issues, severe and persistent mental illness, people who are struggling with bipolar, other serious mental illnesses like depression and anxiety and things like that. And mm -hmm. so my work with Bohrim and girls is a small part of what I do. But yes, it is an important part of what I do. I think, as like I said earlier, I think parents are doing already a lot and teachers are doing a lot. And I think what is so important to today's generation is feelings of connectedness and feeling of mastery. Our children need to feel connected. They need to feel like they have a strong relationship with someone. They need to feel that they are special to someone and that they are cared about from someone and that they mean something to somebody very much. Yes, we grow up in families. We know our parents love us. We say that all the time. We know our parents care for us. But are we special to them? Are, are we on their minds? What parents can do is simply show their children that they mean a lot and by initiating, initiating connection. You have a child in yeshiva, you have a child in seminary, instead of waiting for them to call you, which happens all the time, your children are gonna call you daily, is reach out to them. How are you doing? I was thinking of you today, what's going on? And things like that, make a connection. Little boys, especially young boys, the age of four or five, seven, what ends up, what happens is they're much more comfortable not communicating. And I'm not making a generality, but you know, we find by boys more than girls, boys often do not develop social skills or communication skills early on. Parents need to ask them, how are you? What happened in school? Making connections with them, talking to them. And the same thing is with girls, talking to them, showing them, that we're interested in their lives, including them in things, asking them for their opinion. Now, asking them for their opinion doesn't mean that we are going to listen to everything they say and abide by it. But we are at least 
showing them that we care about them and that we're taking them seriously. We may disagree with them. We may have some other feedback to say, but give them a sense of importance, give them a sense of relevance. I think this is such an important thing today. Um, when we include our children in discussion, we include our children in conversation, we take their input and we listen to them and they feel important, they feel listened to. When a child feels listened to and respected, that is the strongest thing which will give them the stamina to stand up to outside influences. When they don't feel listened and they don't feel the positive love coming, not because they're not loved, but because they don't feel it being initiated from somebody else towards them, they're going to look for a place where they'll get that attention and we'll get that care. That's why it's so important. So I would say make a connection with your children. It's not the quantity, it's the quality. Talk to them, ask them what they learned. If they're involved in technology, ask them what they're looking at. If you have some compliments, comments, if you've got some criticisms, leave that for a separate time. You can always give them feedback. You can always do the teaching at a separate time. But when you're connecting with them, use that simply to let your child know that you're interested and concerned about them and interested in their world. Do you know who their friends are? Do you know what they like? And constantly go back and let them sh show them that their lives are relevant to you. When they I have feel a quick question. I, I don't want to interrupt. I, I don't like to interrupt, but I just have a quick question with regard to that. I can see that working with children that are communicative. On occasion, parents will have a child. It's not typical, but there are children that have a harder time communicating and are more kind of quiet and more reserved and have a harder time expressing. So you could say to them, how was your day? Not, it was good. What'd you, it was okay. I mean, I know that there are questions we can ask, like who did you sit next to on the bus or more specific questions that we can get them to speak more. But I'm curious if you have a teenager that's not necessarily being so responsive, it, it, that's gonna be a challenge to try to connect with that child, especially if they're away from home in the yeshiva. So simple thing I would say to you is it's true. Some kids are hard to communicate with. The answer to that is twofold. First of all, uh, people who have a difficult time communicating, often it's because it's face-to-face -face and you're asking them a direct question. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if you're talking about something else which is interesting to them, it's easier for them to communicate. You don't have to be asking them always, how are they doing? Interesting. You can be sharing with them information about something which they like. So for example, even if it is a video game, and they are happening to be watch, playing a video game, sit down and play with them for a little while. Uh, if you know they're interested in something watching sports, sit down with them and talk to them about what they're interested in talking about. You'll be surprised how quickly they will talk. Uh, I know personally from uh, some people who have difficulty with face-to-face -face communication. They love it when you're driving in a car and you just kind of throw out a question and they answer it because they don't feel put on the spot that both of you are looking in a different direction, not looking at each other so they don't feel overwhelmed by the interaction. And another thing is having children participate in activities. When we share an activity with children, they don't have to talk, but hey, wanna go ride bike riding with me? Uh, you wanna help me build this? 
well, please help me build this. And this doesn't start at the age of nine, but it starts at a young age when we ask children to participate and to help in a way that they can. Hey, can you get me the hammer? Not just as a chore, but as a participation. Oh, wow, you helped me build that. Thank you so much. That sense of accomplishment, not just of necessity. Do you want to help me uh, do the laundry? Not just please do the please uh, fold your clothes, but can you help me out? And that gives them a sense of importance. So it doesn't have to be specifically through community, through talking about things. It could be through shared activity that a child also feels valued and important. That's a great recognized. That's a great answer for that. Thank you. I did, and I apologize for interrupting your train of thought there, but that was that's helpful. Can you just share with us some thoughts and some guidance with regards to the bigger issues that you're seeing today? Like, I know that we've all talked, how do we get ahead of them? You know, we want to avoid calling you professionally, okay? <laughs> we want to just see you on, you know, the screen like this. But I know this is a broad question. Can you speak openly and just give us a message, like something that you could share with us with regard to overall mental health for our children and our families. So uh, you're trying to talk me out of my job, aren't you? <laughs> so a little bit. I will actually go in the opposite direction first and I will say, I think that sometimes getting advice or getting feedback or talking over an issue before it comes a problem is actually a healthy thing. Instead of seeing professional help as something you go to when there's a problem, sometimes think of it as something just to get clarity about how to proceed in, some, in, 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 in an issue, whether it's parenting, whether it's relationships. Often people feel that uh, getting some advice, getting some feedback is a sign that there's a problem. I don't think it's true. We find in Pirkeovis, find for yourself a friend. I like to think of myself as that chaver that people come to and ask me questions. Obviously, I'm not talking about having to go to a therapist every single week for a year. I'm talking about just a short consult. So the first thing is, maybe we need to be less afraid of getting some, some uh, uh, guidance. I like How that reframe. That's a, that's a good way of, I like that reframe. We have to be I, looking at it as a way of, um, that it's not a negative thing to be calling a therapist or a coach or a psychologist and asking them, what is their take on this for some clarity on something that that's not necessarily a negative, that's actually a plus. It means you're getting ahead of it. I like that. Absolutely. And that's not only a therapist. I would say it may be the teacher of your children. It may be a mashpia. doesn't have to be a therapist. It could be right. a good friend. It could be a mother. When If we try to think that we can, we have to figure this out all by ourselves, I think that's a mistake. We don't have to figure it out all ourselves. Third thing is, the other thing is I would say is, we need to recognize that to be healthy on a day-to-day -day basis, we need three things. I like to call them obligation, inspiration, and recreation. We need those three things constantly. We cannot survive by one of them or by two of them alone. When I say obligation, I mean we have commitments. As observant Jews, we have to daven. As human beings, we have to go to work. As children, we need to go to school. We have chores, whether it's at home, whether it's in life, we've got obligations. We've got commitments. When we have obligations and we live up to those expectations, they give us a sense of satisfaction. 
We also need inspiration. We need things which excite us, which drive us, not because we have to do them, but because we want to do them and they give us meaning, a meaningfulness in life. Our Yiddishkeit, ideally, is our inspiration. But for other people, it's their art, it's their work. They're inspired by it. They like it. It gives them a strong sense of meaningfulness. That's not enough. We cannot be driven by meaningfulness. We will burn out if all we do is acts of meaningfulness and acts of obligation. We need recreation also. When I mean recreation, I mean self-care. Self-care is those things which are enjoyable. Exercise can be a form of self-care, but picking up a book which we enjoy is an act of self-care. Of course, if we get them out of balance and we indulge in one more than the other, now life becomes self-care or life becomes recreation, that's going to cause depression, cause some other problems too. But it's a balance. Where is the balance of those three things in our lives? Where's the balance of those things out in our children li children's lives? We tend to forget about one of them at certain times or two of them at certain times because we become either overwhelmed or engrossed in one of them. But we need to take care of all three of them all the time. It is true. Sometimes we'll be more involved in inspiration and less in recreation. That is true. But ultimately, we have to have that balance in our lives. I like that obligation, inspiration, and recreation. That's an easy way to remember that you want to keep a balance with all three of those things. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Shigala, for your time and for your willingness to come on and share your wisdom with all of us. And um, may Hashem uh, bless you with continued strength and kayak to do the holy work that you're doing, because I think it is very much a very holy work. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And may Hashem bless you the same way you continue the holy work which you're doing and educating people and inspiring people. All the best.